As a rogue, it's easy for me to spot the perfect mark. I get anything I want with a little distraction and patience. But as a role player, screw patience. I can't wait for my Dungeon Crate to arrive every month. Dungeon Crate brings me amazing RPG accessories like dice, minis, adventures, and lots more. And rumor has it around the guild, you also get a digital crate with even more secret extras. Dungeon Crate has what I want. Take what you deserve and become a member of Dungeon Crate today at DungeonCrate.com. And use the coupon code Appendix DC for $5 off any new subscription. I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club Podcast. I'm your co-host, Hoy, and with me, is, as always, is that primordial desert demon, Jeff Goad. <laughs> and with us today is very special guest, Agatha Chang, co-host of the Asians Represent Podcast and contributor to the upcoming Hearts of Wulin RPG. Hello, Agatha. Hello, hello. Happy to have you on. I'm actually a big fan of your show, and I've uh, been uh, really learned a lot by listening to you and Daniel, so I think it's, um, and I think it'll be really fun to have you on today. Thank you. Yeah, I'm. I'm very interested <laughs> in this discussion today as well. <laughs> so this week we are reading Conan the Adventurer. Um, Jeff, do you want to talk about which edition that you're working from today? Sure. So I've got the 1966 Lancer paperback, and the Lancer paperbacks are famous for their terrible glue. So mine is falling apart. And it's more like a slipcover over two loose booklets. Uh, <laughs> but that is the one I've got. And it's got the Frank Frazetta cover where we've got, you know, your traditional um, Frazetta cover where there's the woman cowering at Conan's feet. But in this one, because of the coloring of it, she actually looks no different than any of the corpses that are also cowering at his feet. Uh, which may, which is probably not intentional commentary, but I think it's easy to read into that. Hmm. Hmm. She's actually faintly succubus-like too in this one. You know. Yeah, she is. How about yeah. you, Hoy? Which one are you working with? Uh, I have the same copy, although um, being the kind of collector I, I am, I didn't actually read that many stories from the actual copy. I actually read my ebook of um, Coming of Conan on my Kindle and the longer story that is leads off the book, which is um, uh, People with Black Circle, is in my copy of uh, Bloody Crown of Conan from the Del Rey series. So. And which has the really nice Gary Gianni illustrations also, the pen and ink illustrations. So that's what I'm working with today. And how about you, Agatha? I th I'm pretty sure that I also worked from the same collection for, uh, which one was it? The drum, the drum, the drums of Tumbalku, uh, because that was the one that I couldn't find <laughs> online. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so apparently, um, uh, you feel free to cut this if you want, but like I found um, most of these Conan, the uh, Conan the Sumerian stories on uh, the Australian version of Project Gutenberg. Right, right, free read. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, except for that specific one, because that one was uh, it was a fragment that was right that was uh, kind of completed by the editor, which is mm -hmm. an interesting yeah choice. Right. Um, yeah, but I did read that one as well. I read it at a reference-only <laughs> collection, <Yeah. laughs> and it was very precious. So they gave me a con like 
a reader assistant tool that where I had to place the book on there so that I can't bend the spine too far back. And <laughs> apparently, yeah, it is very fragile. So yeah. that, that, that is the same version as well. Right, right. So that's an amazing resource. Was that, uh, where, that was in Toronto? That, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. We should be so lucky to have, you know, public accessible Conan books down here in the States. <laughs> yeah, we have a specific, like, it's like a science fiction collection in one of the libraries so that's great that's great that is really cool and what a what a fun way to read that story as well <laughs> yeah it was very interesting <laughs> you, you basically went on a quest to read that book oh i did i, I tripped <laughs> through some pretty cold weather to get there <laughs> oh. <laughs> well thank you so much right right so so agatha um what is your background in gaming and and also in sort of heroic fantasy fiction Oh, okay. Um, so for gaming, I started, um, I think I, I started gaming about three years ago, three or four years ago. And uh, my first games were one, uh, two sessions of fourth edition D&D, and then also two sessions of Pathfinder. Mm-hmm. And um, I've, I, both of those didn't pan out for, you know, like scheduling reasons and so on. And then I just like, uh, went off another end instead because I found the gauntlet, uh, which is like an online gaming community. And the games that they play are more, uh, more on the indie variety. So, mm-hmm. so that was all I played after that. Mm-hmm. One of the things I love when I listen to Asians represent is you talking about trad gaming, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. which for our listeners is short for traditional gaming. So she stuck with a bunch of tradders today. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I started playing D&D again also on Asians represent. And that is a very interesting experience. Mm-hmm. And that's the uh, fifth edition game, right? With, um, with a yes. very a- Asian themed game. Yes, though we basically wrote our, I guess this is like homebrewing, I guess, uh, our own settings. So I don't know how much of it is really exercising the rules of D&D, which apparently is also a very D&D experience. Oh, absolutely. Exactly. That's, that's the quintessential <laughs> D&D experience, really. You take what you like and you make up the rest. Yeah. So mm-hmm. Agatha, how much fantasy fiction from pre-Dungeons and Dragons era, like written before 1980, had you read prior to this project? Oh, Oh, that's a very interesting question. Um, well, that def- that depends on how we define fantasy. <laughs> define it however you would like. So, for example, uh, I uh, like if we're thinking of like kind of the way that we would um, categorize it, like a Tolkien esque fantasy. I I've read, um, I think I read up to the two towers. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. I didn't continue after that. Um, so I read those. Uh, I also read uh, the the C.S. Lewis series, but not a lot of other fantasy. I tried reading um, the Wheel of Time at one point or another in high school, which I don't think is before uh, the D and D era. No, it's not, but I was going to ask if what, what kind of fantasy fiction you've read post D&D era as well. Right. Yeah, I tried reading it and then I was like, oh, this is not written for me as the intended reader. So I stopped. But it seemed fine. And it's like 30,000 pages. It, they are all <laughs> weapons. <laughs> I am struck by the depth of knowledge that both you and Daniel have about sort of uh, current pop culture and specifically Asian pop culture. Mm. Um, so um was that something that was heavily inflected your game uh you know your sort of 
fantasy enjoyment experience before even coming to gaming in terms of like, you know, uh, manga, wuxia, that kind of stuff like that as well? Uh, yeah, I mean, I read uh, a couple of Jin Yong's series, so I, I, I do have that, and I was I used to be very into manga and anime. Uh, Sorry, so, is, that, is that an author or is that a genre? Jin Yong is an author. Jin Jong is an author. He's kind okay. of like one of the people that revitalized the the wuxia genre. Right. right. So, okay. Um, yeah. So one car wipe. Uh, Ashes of Time. It's based on one of his books. The one car okay. wipe film, and then mm-hmm. some more popular ones and mm-hmm. more generic ones. So. Yeah, his stuff is constantly getting remade in China. They're just the money maker. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and that is something that uh, you were bringing into the Hearts of Wulin game in terms yes. of your your contribution there. Definitely, definitely. Very cool. So before we head into the library and start discussing Conan the Adventurer, let's look at our Hygaxian word of the day. Paroxysm. Paroxysm. And paroxysm is found on page 16 of my copy. And it says, on the dais under the golden dome, the king cried out again, racked by awful paroxysms. And a paroxysm is a sudden attack or violent expression of a particular emotion or activity. So that is our Hygaxian word of the day. So heading on into the library, we are discussing Robert E. Howard and Elsprague DeCamp's Conan the Adventurer. Agatha, what did you think? <laughs> um, it was it was it was an adventure. <laughs> <laughs> I guess maybe we can start with uh, the first story, The People of the Black Circle, because we've got four stories here. People of the Black Circle, mm-hmm. Slithering Shadow, Drums of Tumbalku, and Pool of the Black One. What did you think of People of the Black Circle? What worked for you and what didn't work for you? Well, I came into this with absolutely no idea of any of the context. I mean, the the edition I was reading, it had notes, uh, which were kind of helpful in a way, because they they gave me some context, but they also were more confusing because then I had more names and regions to uh, remember. And then I kept on referring to the map that was included at the front of the book because I was like, what? Who who, who are these people? And how are they? I think this is the most political of all of the stories that that are in this collection and that there's a lot of moving parts from different people. I mean, different yeah yeah factions so that was a little bit overwhelming for me so i mm-hmm. actually like left it and then went to read something like one of the other ones and then came back to it and i was like oh okay like now i have a better idea right. that might actually even be a better way because in my personal opinion this is the uh, story with the most complexity and to come yeah. back to it it's most it's more enjoyable than to be the first one up front i think that yeah. was the trap of elspreg the cramp attempting to put these stories into sort of an internal chronology and right. so that's why the story led off. Um, but so once you had come back to the story, how did you feel at that point? Um, I, I thought it was... So So the way I feel about these stories is I'm like, oh, I can see why people are really into them. Mm-hmm. Because they are really fast-paced. Like, I, I enjoy that they are always... Uh, like, the plot is always twisting and turning, and there's just always action on the pages. So they are all very quick reads, which is nice i um i don't i actually i thought it was okay if i just ignored all of the things that would bother me um and i just kind of 
assumed that this was a part of the genre and the time. So then, um, right. Sure. Absolutely. It's the kind of thing where you can read four pages and there will be more action that happens in four pages of a Robert E. Howard Conan story than will happen in 200 pages in the wheel of time. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Oh gosh. Uh, and yeah, I, as I was reading it, I was like, oh, these are, so I was taking notes, uh, on, first of all, I was taking a lot of notes on names that were that sounded a lot like real world names, and I was like, "Oh, this guy's kind of lazy with the naming." Oh yeah, like the Himalayans, <laughs> you know. And, then, <laughs> and also, literally, just the coasts were just the picks. I was right. like, oh. <laughs> "Oh, okay." So some some made up stuff, and then some just like taking from existing. Right, right. Um, I think. Um, I think that might have been both laziness, but also to as a, a way to immediately communicate something that, you know, in sort of the pre-internet era where people wouldn't be able to look this stuff as read up mm-hmm. as readily, right? So they're just reading these pulp magazines in the 1930s, like, oh, okay, I, I kind of get these guys. These are Afghanis, right? You know, or at least my perception yeah. of, what, of the stereotypical Afghani tribesmen is. So that's a, a useful shorthand yeah. from, from a fiction point of view. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Afghanistan and... Uh... And Iran. Yeah. And yeah, Afghanistan. Right. Oh, sorry. Yeah. My bad. Uh, <laughs> and yeah. Iranistan. Right. right. And, and northern and obviously northern India from where the prince, the Devi comes from. Um, so, but I, I, he did genuinely, as far as I understand, of course, do his homework about this and was genuinely fascinated by this era. So to want to bring that flavor in is, is maybe, you know, at least not sort of generic, you know, Western European Ivanhoe kind of stuff. So there's a fascination, but it, it was yes. all in his, in his mind and he had never actually had a chance to experience it, you know, first. Yes. I can definitely read the fascination from the words as well. He takes a lot of time to uh, describe these very Orientalist uh, settings and, and they are very, I feel like, like writing wise is pretty good. Like it's, he has very concise, but descriptive writing. I was like, Oh yeah. Like I'm in this Orientalist world. That's, <laughs> this, right. this is really fun if right. i ignore the, right. all the women right and, and that is a, a discussion that you have a lot on your podcast about orientalism do you did you find it um problematic i mean super problematic i mean there's always elements of problematic but it uh super problematic compelling somewhere in between you know i mean is the fascination enough to overcome the sort of um his fascination sort of over enough to overcome sort of the exoticism you know I think this is really hard to over uh, to kind of separate from like it. These kind of books, I feel like it's always hard to say what um, lens that you're going in with, because of course I can go in and say and pick out all of the things that are just uh, stereotypes and you know ex- exoticism, orientalism, the way that um, the <laughs> well, the first of all, the way that um. If uh, in one of the stories, not this one, the the drum one, which I guess was also not written half, only half written by Howard, but it was like every time it's like this is a black man. Like I, I feel like the the way that skin color is emphasized, um, and then also the way that they like to describe like the mysterious part of um, you know various settings and a lot of these stories, they keep using the word mysterious. Uh, it's, you know, these are all there. So it's, mm-hmm. if I wanted to go in to be like, uh, these are all problematic things. It's There's no way that you can ignore them. But at the same time, 
I, I can't, I think it depends on the reader, right? Like if you're like, I'm not comfortable with this kind of content, then, then nothing, like, even if he's like, well, even if you can tell that he's very into this culture, you're still not comfortable with it because it's just, it's not okay for you. But if you're, you can ignore it, (laughs) then, then it's not a problem. And Mm -hmm. I feel like there, because it's so, um, front and center that uh and it's so there's no like yeah it's so it's so front and center and so straightforward the 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 orientalism and then also the way that women are portrayed i feel like it's not even like sexism it's just like a whole different level um that it's there's no nuance to it so to to kind of like either excuse it or not because this is just the product of its times and like people at uh, at that time was like, yeah, that's normal. So mm. I feel like that's, I can't really think about it in that way uh, if I want to even read this and derive some enjoyment from it. Mm-hmm. Sure. And when you say it's not even sexism, it's something else, I, I would maybe, I would agree with that. And I would maybe say that it's male fantasy wish fulfillment. Yeah. It's kind of what's happening in these stories. And I guess my question for you regarding all of this is do you think there is merit? in going back and reading stories that are foundational on our hobby that have really kind of fun, compelling, interesting things about them, but also give us great examples of the ways we do not want to be dealing with people of other races, dealing with women, things like that. Um, I think the first part is legit. Like if you want to go back to read things that entertain you, uh, just knowing what they are, that's totally fine. People are still reading and obsessed with Lovecraft in spite of the many problematic Mm -hmm. uh, aspects of his stuff. Um, I think looking at it and being like, we should not do this is, is not really a thing because, um, you can choose because if you were to read content that is problematic, you inherently will retain that, right? Like you remember these kind of details. And a lot of times when, especially when you're role-playing, like that just kind of comes out, uh, like, because it's, everything is on the spot. So I think that's not really a a reason to read these works. Uh, but I think if you just want to be entertained, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. Yeah. So speaking of the female characters, you know, in the first story, we've got uh, Yasmina. And the second story, we have Natalia and uh, Thallus the, St- the Stygian. In mm. Drums, we've got uh, Lissa. And then in Pool of the Black, we've got Sancha, kind of our our naked boat queen. Um, <laughs> what did you think of the female characters? Did they have any merits at all? Uh, oh, you mean... <laughs> You mean the sexy baby girls? Yes, the sexy baby girls. <laughs> or like <laughs> a sexy viper queen. I was going to say, in fairness, they have some complexity. Some are good and some are evil. <laughs> That's the extent of their complexity. <laughs> it was it was really, it was definitely interesting for me because I read, so I read, again, I went, I read the drums of Tumbaku first. Oh, no, I, I read the pool a little bit of the pool and I was like I can't I don't understand I need to read a shorter <laughs> one so then I read the drums of Tumbaku and then I read uh I think it was the pool of the black one wait yes yes yeah, it was the pool of the black one right, yeah the uh, and I was like oh these are pretty much the same stories that's mm-hmm. interesting um because they're or at least yeah yeah I think in the setup they're pretty much exactly the same just with two different main characters and I mean the drums, they kind of veered off in a different direction later. And I think that was pretty much uh, Sprague's 
uh, it seems like yeah yeah or the camp sorry yeah the De- camp's own take on it and it was i actually really enjoyed that but i was like oh yeah these are the same stories it's like this they're both trapped in this space this mysterious space where people are going crazy and there's a kind of like a, a, a dark scary elder god eating the people and then there's a sexy baby girl who will, <laughs> will scream and cry and need to be babied literally carried around and fed <laughs> water or food depending on the situation uh, we're each yeah you know, i was like oh wow uh, okay cool this is just <laughs> right right like yeah. i mean but i don't i feel like it's so I, I wouldn't choose to read this uh, myself for entertainment because I don't really find these kind of portrayals that entertaining. But considering that I was I was going to read it anyway, I it they just seemed so cartoony that it wasn't like I wasn't offended. Almost mm. I was just like this is this is just kind of uh, yeah, it's definitely a, a fantasy right. fulfillment. Do you give um, Sancha any credit for having psychological acuity for recognizing like the power dynamics that are on the pirate ship? And, and you know, although she's basically a, you know a mistress, a kept woman, a slave, whatever, that she sort of has some ways of sort of maintaining her identity and, and sort of manipulating the pirate chief just to sort of maintain her position. Do you give her any credit for that, or do you think that's again just part of that whole lump sum lumped in with a sort of weird wish fulfillment? I mean, it, do I want to give her credit over being a, a sexualized baby? Uh, sure, I, I will give her that. She does have more complexity than, say, uh, Nat- Natala. Yeah, uh, Natalia and Lisa. Yeah, sorry, right. I get really. Yeah, yeah very. Simple. They're all very confusing. And or Lisa. I, yeah. Yeah. I sure. Yeah, I'll give her that. Why not? <laughs> and in general, the ones that are a little bit more vixeny and the ones that are potentially a little bit uh, a little bit more likely to be a little villainous do tend to be the slightly more interesting of the women in these kinds of stories. Just yeah. because there's a little bit more meat, there's a little bit there's a little bit more something for you to kind of uh, explore and dig your teeth into and relate to, rather than just like, oh, here's the naive innocent girl who's terrified mm-hmm. but also very sexy right, right. very sexy <laughs> stories oh, absolutely. will not let you forget right, i right. mean yeah and these are yeah they're, they're femme fatales so mm-hmm. they're they're i feel like they are what they are right. they're, they're the ones that are aware of their sexuality and use them as weapons are also threats and that's that's yeah there are archetypes. I don't feel again. I don't feel like one way or another about them because I still feel like they're just cartoony. they're just yeah. they're just archetypes and they're kind of cartoony. Right. I thought, the language used for their sexiness really kind of cracked me up though, because at one point Howard refers to one woman having a supple spine. Yeah. And I'm like, what does that even mean to have a supple spine? Yeah. And then at another point, he talks about how her like sexiness could even melt a man of ice or something like that. And I'm like, well. Wouldn't a man of ice be easy to melt? Yeah. Because he's made I think from that was ice. the drums. That was yeah. the drums. <laughs> like, that's a strange way to describe... Anyways. Right. <laughs> I mean, I thought one thing was interesting with um, the Devi, uh, Yasmina, was um, 
starting to talk about the element of class, right? And, you know, this thing was more humiliating to her because she was a queen, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And when she has that past life regressions, when the, when the evil wizard sort of hypnotizes her with the black Lotus and she has to live all those thousands of lives that she had. So she finally understands what it means like to be a peasant or like barely a cave woman. Uh, But at the same time, that other half of her mind is like, I'm a queen, I'm a queen. Um, Mm -hmm. um, So that, that I thought was interesting. It doesn't necessarily elevate it beyond, you know, again, this very archetypal type character, uh, archetypal character, but um, you know, I think Howard was—he wasn't working class, but he was, you know, a little bit more of a, a man of the earth than, say, Robert E. Howard. I mean, that Howard H.P. Um, H.P. Lovecraft was, you know, mm. purely bookish. You know, that Howard was out there in Texas, and you know, in sort of a very working class town, and sort of had that understanding. Um, that maybe oh, Lovecraft, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. That that is very interesting in terms of the way that men are portrayed in uh, and like male relationships are portrayed in these stories, which I found more fascinating because I felt like the women characters they weren't people to me most of the time. I felt like Yasmina had a little bit more interesting progression mm-hmm. uh, comparatively, but for me, I was very interested in the way that the men related to each other because that was the only relationship that felt like people. Right, right. To well, me. Hoy, I'm glad you brought up the past life regression because there are actually two things that I thought were interesting about that. One, it's that every of her past life, she was always a woman. Mm-hmm. And in that, it makes it makes it clear to me that Robert E. Howard very much sees the female soul and the male soul as two distinct and different things, because it's not like she was going back and she was like a, a, a male chief of a tribe, but she was always a woman. Right. Uh, but another thing that was interesting, though, is as she's going back in time, she's experiencing a lot of pain and suffering and struggle because of her womanness. So there's also kind of Robert E. Howard acknowledging that the life of a woman in kind of a in, in kind of a world like this can be a life of um, struggle and pain. Yeah, I think, I think, um, and I think he would have witnessed it. He may not have understood it. I mean, he was obviously very close to his mother. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people say that the proximate cause of his suicide was her final illness. Um, and his father was a doctor. He would have seen the sort of the, the, the difficulty of people living in these very hard, hard, uh, scrabble circumstances. Um, whether he would credit beyond that and, and truly understand like what it takes to survive as a person who's not like this raw, you know, brawny, you know, archetypal male is another is another story. But you know, oh, absolutely, because we never see a female character in a Robert E. Howard story that I'm aware of who ultimately overcomes these by not using her sexuality to get men to protect her. Because that ultimately in Howard stories is the only way a woman can protect herself in a world like this. Right, even Belit is by her, her sheer charisma. It's not that she, uh, this is another story, the Queen of the Black Coast, where there's a pirate queen. And, and she's uh, literally naked on the ship 24 <laughs> seven. So I can, I, I can see that. I was looking at the original covers, uh, <laughs> that, uh, of weird tales. And I was right. like, Oh, okay. Oh right. yeah. Which a yeah. lot of those were by, uh, Margaret Brundage is a, a woman artist, but she was very known for her sort of, um, not even quasi pretty much, you know, straight up bondage covers. Right. So, <laughs> oh yeah. Lots of whipping of, uh, women, whipping women, Mm-hmm. Um, so Agatha, what did you think of the character of Conan? I didn't think a lot of him, <laughs> to mm-hmm. be honest. I think the only interesting things were when he was relating to, yeah, I think especially to the men where he just, I feel like his responses are always, he's basically uh, like a narrative tool that moves the the story forward. And I don't really think that he is 
I don't think of him as a person any more than I think of a lot of the female characters as a person, because I don't feel like he's given the same kind of um, character c- complexity and depth that some mm-hmm. of the er- other characters are given, actually. Right. So right. I, think uh, right. I think there is a lot of detail that goes into describing how uh, powerful he is. And I, I feel like it's almost erotic. Uh, no, I think it is erotic the way that it's described. And I thought that was interesting. And I didn't know that that was what men like to read. But I guess now I do. Do you think like as a reader, you would be trying to put yourself in Conan's body? Or do you think as a reader, you would be more like one of these other men who's trying to relate to Conan as this force of nature? Well, okay. So first of all, if I was a man <laughs> um, uh, and I was going from a male perspective, maybe I would... I don't know. It depends. Like, I don't, it's just hard to say because if I'm just reading it for the adventure, then I would probably relate more to the other more complex and uh, characters. Uh, but if I was reading it specifically for wish fulfillment, then I would definitely try to uh, connect more with Conan because mm-hmm. that's, I think, the purpose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, reading it from the perspective from the perspective of looking for the adventure within the story, did you find that Robert E. Howard was um, imaginative and creative with his set pieces, his villains, his monsters, and kind of the magic that they were encountering, or did or were you not particularly particularly drawn into it? Oh yeah, I really liked it. Um, as like the naming conventions aside, that I found a little jarring sometimes just because of the weird mixture of like uh, existing names and then made up fantasy-esque names. Uh, I, I liked, I liked these worlds. I thought they were pretty fun. I, um, yeah, yeah. I liked, I liked the magic. I didn't, I mean, I don't think I've read enough to really get a full grasp of it, but I thought it was cool. I thought it was interesting. Um, this is the kind of fantasy that I the aspect of fantasy that I do enjoy, which is how like there is always a political aspect to things. I thought that was fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Conan is considered to be one of the foundational building blocks of Dungeons and Dragons. And Gary Gygax specifically says Conan was a big source of inspiration for how I designed this game. Whoa. While you were reading these stories, did you see things that felt really D&D to you in these stories or not really? And if so, what were they? I mean, uh, coming from someone who is not a trad gamer. Uh, <laughs> but you're uh, somebody who has opinions on trad gaming. I do. It's true. Um, <laughs> Which I love and appreciate. I, I think the way that combat is described definitely makes a lot of sense to me. Like, as I was reading these, I was like, oh, the well, for example, when I was reading, um, man, I can't, I just can't get <laughs> these, the names of these stories. Oh, okay. The pool, the pool of the black one. Yes. When I was reading the pool of the black one, I was like, oh, like this would be a sick dungeon. Um, mm-hmm. And as I was, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I see these set pieces that would make a really great adventure. So I feel like, and the way that combat it is, is described, it's very tacky tactical um on a like person to person basis not on a large scale and i was like oh yeah like i i've seen or i've played this kind of thing where it's a lot i feel like that part really makes a lot of sense to me um and then also these kind of like um morally 
gray. <laughs> uh, yeah. Kind of. I mean, Conan is the kind of like murder hobo right. stereotype oh, right. of D and D, right? Yes. Where he's like, ah, don't like this. I punch it, or right. and, and a very Never. like my ship now. Right, right. <laughs> and very confident in um in all of his decisions, which I think is a part of what D and D players want, uh, which is fair. Um, and also, but still with his own moral code, right, right, right. Where like his bros are his bros kind of thing. And I feel like <laughs> that seems to be, that makes a lot of sense as, as, uh, the DNA of D and D. So if we were to take, the set pieces that you like and the, the the elements that you like about these four stories and you were to put them into a powered by the apocalypse engine <laughs> and explore these with characters that actually have depth and uh <laughs> wow, i feel called out <laughs> I'm, I'm curious how different do you think these stories would look if if it was being explored in that kind of a setting if I were to run any of these, first of all, I would need to change a lot of the cultural aspects, right? Um, which will be work. And I know that you were saying just the, the taking the parts that I like, but uh, the, some of the t- parts that I like are tied to the parts that are very problematic. So I think a lot of these kind of cultures, like, okay, so I especially really like the drum. The drum. Drums of Timbaku. The drums, thank you. Let's just call it, let's just call it drums. I, I especially like drums. Uh, <laughs> because because I liked um, the dynamic, my, I think my favorite of all of the characters that I've read in these specific stories uh, is, okay, um, the guy that is uh, <laughs> one of the kings. Sakumbe? Yeah, the, him. The, the black king, who's the, the overweight guy, who the former inventor. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I liked him a lot. Yeah. I thought he was just like the most chill and like, <laughs> but like. I don't know. He right. was he was just really he was great. But I, I think what I like out of these, which is like, you know, when you're running a game, you represent these different factions. So depending on who they talk to, care the players talk to, then they would get different aspects. But I would have to change these a lot because a lot of these have very strong uh, not a lot of these, all of these have very strong oriental fence. And so I would need to um, change that. And I would Wait, sorry, I kind of forgot the question. Well, I guess oh, it's one fine. The, one of the issues with heroic fantasy that's not D&D is that it's usually a single protagonist and maybe with a sidekick, and it's not a party uh, the way that, you know, first edition D&D is. Um, he has henchmen, or, you know, he has the occasional allies, but it's usually not a party. So that's a little different. Um, and then maybe that is more privileged in a game that is more, sort of more um, narrative-based, because we're trying to tell a story so the protagonist doesn't die because he only has eight hit points in this scene, right? Um, whereas if you're playing a game that is very um, much more tactical or simulationist, you know, you only know that the character's the protagonist if they survive to the end of the game. But there's tons of set pieces like the, you know, the various desert cities that he's traveling through, which are clearly dungeons. The towers of the wizards are clearly dungeons, you know, and the, the, um, there's spells that you could just, you know, crib straight to whatever your role-playing game system of choice, whether it's the, you know, ripping the heart out of Karim Shah's chest or, you know, these puffballs that explode, uh, you know, on contact with steel. Um, So those are very, very much D&D, I think. And, you know, uh, those kind of hazards, traps, there's secret doors, for God's sakes, right? Which they haven't, you know, um, 
So, um, so that's, that's very D and D, um, whether I would choose to try to emulate a D uh, Conan in literally straight D and D that's another question that that might not be the best system to do that. Sure. I, I think, uh, you know, I heard, uh, Becky Anison talking about her game Lovecraft esque. And one of the things she was discussing in that is how in HP Lovecraft stories, you almost always have a sole protagonist. And she says, that's one of the big kind of problems with playing call of Cthulhu and games like that is that those are kind of team, um, like multiple player focused and I haven't read Lovecraft Desk, and I really want to, but I know that I, I understand that in the game, I think everybody plays the one protagonist together. And I wonder what it would be like to have like a Conan type adventure where all of the players are either taking turns operating Conan and playing while while other people are playing the kind of side characters, or if you are all kind of operating Conan together. That might be kind of an interesting exercise. And I can see Agatha's like the, the wheels are turning in her head right now. <laughs> that is so indie. Oh my. <laughs> I think that could be interesting. I, but I also think that people who, well, I make an assumption here, but I do feel like if you wanted to play a Conan esque adventure in a role playing game, then you would probably want that kind of like power fantasy that came along with it as well right so and i think that might be harder to achieve uh without everyone having their own sick ass kick-ass character uh which is again legit um so i don't know i mean if i were to do something conan-esque i would probably do either uh dungeon world or world of dungeons Mm. (laughs) yeah because that would they just seem to make sense especially world of dungeons i think that gives a lot more leeway for Are any of the games um, that you play that are particularly well suited for sort of like one player, one GM play that would then sort of help simulate the situation? Or is there, are there games that still rely sort of on troop play? Um, I think World of Dungeons probably works because World of Dungeons is very, it's it's one of those games that is, oh, there's a word for it. Um it's like emulating like the earlier kind of role playing games. So it's very systems light. And mm-hmm. so it's not like certain games where you want like a party dynamic mm-hmm. kind of thing. Like I think actually World of Dungeons would be the best choice. Even though I also feel like every single role playing game you can. No, that's not true. <laughs> I take that back. I think many role playing games, especially these kind of like dungeon delving ones, you can probably play it with like a one-on-one situation. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. Uh, one of the things that I think is also interesting about reading these stories is seeing the stuff that is like clearly not emulated well in Dungeons and Dragons. And I think one of the things that we see here is the way that magic is used in these stories is very different than the way that we see magic used in traditional Dungeons and Dragons. For one thing, magic doesn't really seem like like it's accessible to the average person you really need to have some kind of a pact with demons or some kind of a, uh, you had to have sold, like sold a sliver of your soul to some dark entity in order to have access to it. Um, but also the magic in these stories, th- it allows for you to kind of go further than I think, especially early D&D, but I think any edition of D&D, they're always trying to like limit what you can really do with this magic. You know, for example, in any edition of D&D, when you cast, um, I forget oh, the name of the spell where you command, when you cast command, it always says, I believe in every edition, 
that you can't command somebody to do something that they wouldn't in, that they wouldn't naturally do. Like you can't tell them to kill themselves. Right. But in this story, they fully do. Like he uses the spell to just says, go kill yourself. And he's like, okay, sir. And walks off and like kills Leaves himself. He's on a spear, right? Absolutely. So I feel like or one thing that- people forward with this and they just lean their heads over and they behead him. Yeah. 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 And I kind of like that in these stories, they're not nerfing the magic. They're really letting the magic be as wild and powerful as it needs to be. Um, I don't know. Yeah, that's a great point. I remember when uh, Daniel and I and also the rest of the Dungeons and Asians crew, which is an offshoot of Asians Represent, where we were playing D&D in this uh, fantasy, right now fantasy China setting, but we're also planning on moving to other parts of fantasy Asia. Uh, but I remember when we were developing the magic system and because we were developing classes, so specific, that's why we were thinking about that. It was very interesting to think about how we wanted the magic to work in this world. And we decided on making it ritualistic. Um, And I feel like the magic in Conan is also like that. So it's not, I feel like the magic in D&D and a lot of other Western fantasy games is, uh, is very kind of, um, like r- rationalist, right? Uh, technical where, almost in a way. Yeah, yeah. it's very tactical. Yeah, technical. Well, tactical. It's, yeah. it's very rationalist in that it's very scientific. I would mm-hmm. say um, be, where magic is a resource um, and that that can be used, and there's not a mysticism to it. I guess unless you go into like the sh- shaman classes right. and things like that. But I think that's why it's so different. And I agree with you that it does make it more like just a tool that you can use and less so of a great and terrible power that always has a cost. Um, And I I actually really enjoy the magic in Conan. I think it's always so intriguing whenever it happens. Right. But that brings me an interesting point. Um, I was reading uh, James Mendes Hodes Hodes essays about, you know, how, you know, Eastern, you know, things are always perceived as sort of mystical, a little woo woo. Um, so how do we sort of maintain sort of ambiguity without making it, you know, that thing, that woo-woo, oh, mysterious East thing, uh, you know, unnecessarily or, and then, but on the, on the other hand, why we don't want magic to be completely mechanistic like it is in certain flavors of D&D where if A, then B, right? <laughs> right. So where's the, what is the happy medium there, I guess? Is, right. Uh, I, I think those two things are two different concerns and or questions. One is, uh, because I, I don't think they're actually related. I think how to not uh, talk about uh, this uh, Eastern settings without it becoming Orientalist, especially this like mis- mysterious kind of way- aspect of it is to just not use those words, to not use like the mystery of this place. Like, because those were words that came up um, in... Uh, in this short story collection. So, mm-hmm. And then th- when th- those words come up, then you're like, oh yeah, mystery, right? As opposed to just talking about, um, I think it's okay to use uh, imagery that is understood rhetoric within the Orientalist tradition if you if you talk about it like it's a normal thing. For example, like there's in... Um, the Slithering Shadow, there there was a lot of description of this, like, perfume that I also think is a very Orientalist thing. Like, there's a lot of, like, wafting perfume and, like, veiled ladies um, 
kind of thing that is described in Orientalist fiction. And I think you could just talk about incense. You can talk about, or for example, you can talk about magic and it's, this is just normal. This is just accepted. And then if, especially if one were to run a game, like the way that you would, or if you wanted to write a story, I guess, like the way that people would talk about these things is just like, yeah, you have to, well, if you want to do this, you got to talk to that, you know, that lady over there and she'll, you better prepare a lot of blood. Right. Like, and it's as opposed to being like, you will have to talk to that veiled figure over there who's wreathed in smoke, which does not hide her voluptuous body. You know, like, <laughs> like it's, I think it, those two things are not necessarily, um, uh, connected uh, or, or, or inevitably connected. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so you were talking about expanding your Dungeons and Asians games to, other sort of Asian cultures. So one aspect of the Conan stories is so, sort of like this space where the various cultures meet, especially in um, people with the black circle. Mm-hmm. So inevitably there are, when cultures meet, there are mysteries and misunderstandings. How do you play that up without unnecessary exoticism at the same time? That's you know, an interesting concern, I guess. I think that is an interesting thing that has kind of been addressed in some of these Conan stories where like people will make statements about each other and then they will contradict. And I think at least in the game, um, even like, even in the setting of the game, like uh, one of the other players, his character, he was like um, Amar, his character, he wanted that character to be, um south asian but in this fantasy china and so he wanted the title of that character to be the outsider and so we discussed about about that like how much of this kind of um inherent racism or microaggression do does he want us to play up um and i think if we can have that space to where we first discuss kind of the boundaries and then also have tools to stop it if it's too much so safety tools like the x card uh, those would be useful and also i think at the same time if characters just call you like i think a lot of racist notions if they're called out then it's not um the impact is not as as terrible as it would be otherwise so for example if uh if we were to talk about like different cultures interacting and then uh and we wanted to say that there's like established expectations or stereotypes about certain figures like if my character is interacting with someone from somewhere else and i make a statement about it and they just call me out on it and they're like like this is wrong and uh, you're being racist, then I think that's fine, right? Like that's that exists in this game where my character had this assumption and was called out. And so therefore that's acknowledged. Right. And I think that's okay. And, and that it's clear within the context of the game or your your discussion leading into the game that this is the character and not you, but you're trying to play the character as how they would respond in this situation. As yes. opposed to this is me thinking this stupid thing necessarily. Yes, and I think this is a, definitely an advantage that uh, as a visible person of color that I have um, is that I have more space to be like, that's not me. <laughs> right. Because people tend, well, you, like you don't want to assume that a person of color is also racist. Right. I feel like, at least in my experience, I also have that with people. Um, 
which I, I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but definitely that is the case. So I've, I think if I were to be like, that's not me, that's just my character, people would definitely be more willing to accept that. Maybe. Right, right. I don't know. Or maybe I'm just testing. Yeah, I think, <laughs> I think that's true. And Twitter will prove me wrong. <laughs> I think that's, that's true to a point. And obviously it's again with context of, I still probably wouldn't do that with, um, you know, another POC gamer that I hadn't played with before because I wouldn't know what kind of, uh, as you say, microaggressions I'd had to put up with before necessarily. Yes, yes. Yeah, and I I think in terms of role-playing, like establishing um, boundaries is so important for for addressing things that are really sensitive, like, like race and racial relations. That's just, and also I think in terms of like gender dynamics as well, which um, I don't. Well, I don't think it's possible to replicate the Conan genre in in terms of the gender dynamics. Um, without, I mean, if you're just playing at your own home group uh, with just a bunch of bros, and then this is what you want, that's that's totally doable. Right. But I think. If you well, want speaking it. on that, so um, one of the things that I see quite a bit in these four stories is the threat of sexual violence. And I'm curious, do you think there is any place for that in in fantasy role playing? No. 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 Every game fair. Yeah. Every game I played, uh I always well, I always uh push for safety tools. And then one of the things that I always say I do not want in the game is is sexual violence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now another thing that we see quite a bit in these stories is slavery. And now in these stories, all of our slaves are milk, milky skinned white women who have been uh, kidnapped or have escaped. But in your opinion, does slavery in any form have a place in fantasy role play? Oh, that's a very heady question. Yeah. C- can I field that? <laughs> as really? I think of answer to Roy? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I think it's inevitable. I mean, it's slavery has been, unfortunately, with human society far longer than it has not been, right? And it exists to this day. So the question is... But the is, same is true of sexual violence. True. I mean, it's what, what are you comfortable with at the table, right? Um, most people who are in role-playing game situations may or may not have encountered or know someone who has encountered sexual violence. Very few people who have, enc- very few people who have encountered actual literal slavery. Um, I'm not saying that's a good thing to not understand that, but I think that there are things you can discuss uh, about um, slavery, bondage, involuntary, you know, um, you know, uh, control of, of, you know, your life. Um, it is worth discussing, um, but not to sort of, relish in it you know and so you know you can't have a game that's about abolitionism you could have a game that conversely puts you in the position of like what if i was a person who thought of myself as a good person but you know i am also still within this system that supports bondage of you know and involuntary labor and and you know the destruction of families um because that's that's part of part of feudal surf medieval serfdom. That's part of most social systems that have existed, you know, and, and continue to exist to a certain extent in the 21st century. So it's almost unavoidable. But can we blank it out, or can we, you know, address it? I don't know. And perhaps if you're doing it within a framework of slavery is something that exists in your world that your players are fighting against, 
But if you are captured by the wrong people, you may end up in this position, but you now need to get out of it. That might potentially be something that's interesting as long as it's not clearly like this is a slave race and this is the race that enslaves them. Then I think at that point, you start getting into uh, dicey waters. And I also think you get into dicey waters um, or maybe you're just fully problematic if your PCs have slaves and have no um, qualms about that. Right. Well, I mean, uh, but I'm oh, sorry. And as I was saying, Agatha, now that you've had a chance to kind of chew on this for a bit, do you have a response? Oh, I wanted to hear Hoy's follow up. Hoy, go <laughs> ahead. A swig of water. <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, to get particularly problematic, uh, the particular game I'm playing right now, a BX game, is the Yuen Suen setting, which there is a crab man race who are literally considered the lowest of the low. Right. No, <laughs> right. I, I'm playing a shrimp uh, right now in the, my D and D game. So <laughs> right. my fellow crustaceans, right? And then, <laughs> right, yeah, you know, crustacean power, a little claw. Um, but uh, you know, and then, then there's the slug men who are sort of like the Brahmin class who own all the land and all the property, and in between are the humans, some of whom own slaves and some of whom are slaves. Um, so it's a feature of the setting. I haven't really addressed it. Um, one of my younger players, um, who who uh, Jeff, you know from the the DCC meetup back day, is actually playing a crab person. Um, I think they're in this case, uh, you know, a manumitted slave, and they're continue to be a companion of a a, a slug man whose life they've saved. Um, so we haven't like sort of you know pushed on it heavily. If we get into a more social aspect of the game, because right now they're sort of out in the jungle, just exploring this old ruin. And get back to the city. I mean, I think I would have to address it, but I wouldn't. I would have to just gauge the comfort level of the people at the table and say, "Okay, well, listen. You know, this character is meant to be the lowest of low, but by that token, they also get access to certain things and understandings about how this society operates that these other characters don't understand. This undercurrent that's going on. And then if they, if this one player wanted to talk about like an underground crab." you know, crab liberation front, I'd be like, go for it. Let's do, let's do it. <laughs> you know, right? you know, a, a crab underground railroad. Let, let's go for it. Let's do it. Right. You know? I mean, that's what you would hope for as right. a GM. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think this is a great question because uh, this was also a part of the discussion for, uh, for us when we were developing the setting for, again, for our D and D game for the podcast. Um, I remember the one thing I don't remember who was that brought up. I don't know if it was Daniel or if it was uh, Amar again, but um, I, what, what was said at the table was that um, indentured servitude is a thing that we as a table are, are okay with because, and that is the kind of like cultural touchstone that we are drawing from where it's that, and indentured servitude, I think, is kind of more like the way that slaves were uh, in ancient Greek society mm-hmm. um, versus later on, you know, where it's like, and and I think it's very complicated because it, it, with that, it's definitely, it's not cer- necessarily that there's a race of people that are um, supposed to be servants, but it's, it's a class of people that are supposed to be servants. And that's still very dicey, I think, it, and it definitely depends on how we're treating it at the table but i like what you said jeff where it's that it's that the the race that is supposed to be slaves and have always been slaves is what i think would make people a lot more comfortable 
uncomfortable because we're talking about what kind of slavery, right? Are we, yeah. are we even dealing with? Because there are different contexts for slavery that people would draw from. And so if everyone, if everyone, I think generally I would say people do not want uh, the kind of slavery that happened, say, um, uh, in, in the United States right. and, race, you know, right. and, yeah. like race, race-based quote-unquote slavery, yeah. that kind of like white people enslaving black people. That's not a thing that we want. I'm not sure that I totally can address. I mean, I come from a country that was colonized, but it's not a country that, again, that was literally enslaved. enslaved. Yeah, same. Right. So, so, you know, if we were delving to this and I had, again, people, you know, people, you know, black American or other f- former slave societies, you know, people, descendants of then I would definitely have to tread very carefully on that and say, well, okay, listen, you know, this is a feature, but if we want to completely blank this out, uh, know that it's in the background of the setting as written or as created, because I don't generally take like 100% my own settings. Um, but, you know, if that's not, it's not something that you want to see or hear or talk about, then we'll have to think about how to address this and adjust the situation so that it's appropriate for everyone at the table. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. Yeah. So we are running out of time. Agatha, Ooh. was there any kind of last thing from Conan the Adventurer that you really wanted to chat about that we did not yet get a chance to address? No, I feel like I've talked pretty much <laughs> two-thirds <laughs> of this podcast. <laughs> well, thank you for being such a good sport and letting us putting you on the spot as much as we did. <laughs> we have so many trad gamers that like we just can't help but like, you know, we're we're fascinated. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you. This right. was very interesting. Yeah, no. Right. I, I liked the the hard hitting questions that were being thrown. That was fun. <laughs> Do you have Perfect. any uh, particular projects that you want to let people know about or how you can be found on social media if they, if they want to follow up on any questions that you've raised? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if people are curious about our Dungeons and Asians campaign that I keep mentioning, uh, you can you can just listen to us on anywhere that you you want to <laughs> that, that you <laughs> podcast, wherever you're listening to this podcast you can find us there as well we're on stitcher we're on itunes we're on uh spotify uh as dun- oh, no not dungeons and Dungeons. as uh, asians represent and if you want to find us on twitter we are at AZNS represent, or if you're American, at AZNS represent. And we're the same on Instagram. And then also, if you want to email me with any thoughts about Conan the Adventurer, you can definitely, or it's Conan in general, or Trad Games, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you can email me uh, or email us, Daniel and I, at um, AZNS represent at oneshotpodcast.com. And we also have an itch.io page, which I think is most just like all Daniel's games. But if you want to check out his games, his games are pretty cool. So there you go. Uh, it's also a- Asians represent there. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Awesome. And Hoy, how can people find us? All right. If you want to give us some feedback via email, we're uh, appendix and book club at gmail.com. Uh, on Twitter, we're at appendix underscore N. We're on all the usual podcatchers of choice. Uh, if you like us, uh, please give us some feedback on iTunes or Google Play. It helps people find us. And Jeff, what about our Patreon? If you would like to check out our Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash appendix N book club and show us your support there. Uh, we did have two patrons join us for our pre-show discussion. Adam Styers and Jeremy Harper were on earlier for our patron book club to talk about 
Conan the Adventurer, and that was a fun conversation. I would also like to give a shout out to Ethan Schoonover, Noah Green, Frank Maybe, Beckett Warren, Rabbi Fioto, uh, Andrew Sternick, Eric Johnson, and Peter Martino. Those are a few other of our patrons. Thank you so much for your support. And our next two episodes, episode 60, will be on Fritz Leiber's The Swords of Lankmar. And episode 61 will be on A. Merritt's Dwellers in the Mirage. So, Agatha, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's been an honor. Yeah, thank you. I really enjoyed it. Okay, see you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed.